Alright. That is a, a wonderful song. I love the fact it talks about our hearts being prone to wonder and talk about that sin nature that we all struggle with. We, Even as Christians, we want to do the right thing, but we've got this old sin nature, this old self that's wanting to drag us away from the Lord. And um, the gospel um, is not just for for lost folks, it's for saved folks too. As, as Sue pointed out this morning, she said, you know, it's it's good uh, that we as Christians need to be reminded of what saved us and what keeps us saved and what will save us in the future. It's the gospel. It's it's what Christ has done. And so we throw ourselves on his mercy and, and just pray, you know, God, by your grace, uh, keep me, uh, keep me uh, yours and, and draw me to yourself. So great song. All right, Colossians chapter 1. We are going to uh, cover verses 24 through 27 tonight. Um, this is, uh, remember Paul is writing to this church there in Colossae, a church that he personally himself did not establish, but yet he felt led of the Lord to uh, write this letter, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this letter, uh, to deal with some issues that were going on there, some problems in doctrine that had been creeping into the church. And Paul was writing uh, either to prevent those things from coming into the church or, or eliminate that at the beginning. And as he wrote to them at the beginning of chapter 1, he mentioned the very first thing, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so that is a, a, um, a statement of his authority, of his, of his office as an apostle. And so we might think, what gives Paul the right to write a letter to some church that he'd never met before, he didn't even start, and to write to that church and tell them, you need to fix some things. And what gives him the right to do that? You know, the audacity to do something like that. Well, he's an apostle. That was his ministry. And so that's what we begin seeing here at the end of chapter 1. Um, remember Paul wrote, and he was thankful for that church, of what God had been doing uh, the evidence that the Holy Spirit had come through the gospel and folks got saved and lives were being changed and, and the gospel was being spread there in that city and he was grateful for that and he prayed for that church that they would continue growing and, and bearing fruit and increasing in the knowledge of God and then he began to talk about uh, what God had done for all people in Christ and this, this picture of the, they call it the cosmic picture of Christ that he is the Lord of all creation. As I referenced that this morning, he created everything. You know, it was by him and, and through him and for him, and he holds it all together. And not only is he the Lord of creation, he's also the Lord of the church, not just creation, but the new creation. Even, even more so, he, he didn't just create the world, but, but he saved the world, at least those who would come to him by faith. Uh, that's what Christ has done. And so in, in magnifying Jesus in that way, Paul ended, if you remember, in uh, verse 23, last thing he said is, is, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. And so at this point in the letter, perhaps he felt like it was a, a good time to interject some of, of what uh, uh, made him or, or what gave him the right you know, to, to write and, and, to, and to ask and, and demand these things. If we're going to give a title to uh, this passage tonight, it might be the model minister. And by model, I'm not thinking about GQ or anything like that, but uh, kind of the example or the template for what a, a minister ought to be. And uh, if you think about it in your mind, if you were to try to picture, okay, what is the perfect pastor? 
You know, uh, what does he look like? What kind of things uh, does he do? And and I found this uh, here a while back and and enjoyed it very much. And I've shared it before, and I'll probably share it again because it just kind of it, it kind of uh, touches upon that subject. What each and every one of us as individuals think a pastor is or a pastor should be. It says the perfect pastor preaches exactly ten minutes. So right away, I'm eliminated. You know. Uh, I'm, I'm four times perfect, I guess. Although, to my credit, last two weeks, uh, they've been underneath 40 minutes, both of them, so I, I don't know. But anyway, perfect pastor preaches exactly 10 minutes. He condemns sin roundly, but never hurts anyone's feelings. Don't know how that happens. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight and is also the church janitor. Perfect pastor makes only $40 a week, wears good clothes, drives a good car, buys good books and donates $30 a week to the church he is 29 years old and has 40 years experience <laughs> he makes 15 home visits a day and is always in his office to be handy when needed the perfect pastor always has time for church council and all of its committees he never misses the meeting of any church organization and is always busy evangelizing the unchurched he is a great leader who always follows the will of the congregation. <laughs> he is tall, short, thin, heavyset, and of course handsome, with one brown eye and one blue. His hair is parted in the middle. The left side is blonde and straight. The right side is dark and curly. He is a brilliant scholar, but also a down-to-earth communicator. The perfect pastor has a burning desire to work with teenagers, and he spends most of his time with the senior citizens. He smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to his church. Uh, and so it's just it's kind of a funny picture there. We, we have an idea in our minds of what we think the perfect pastor or the, the model minister is, and that, that image, it, it varies from person to person, doesn't it? We typically think, well, um, from, from my perspective and my point of view, this is what I think is important. But, but to the next person, it might not be as important. If you're a senior adult, then yeah, he needs to spend his time with the seniors. If, he's, uh, if you're a young person or got children, yeah, you want him to emphasize that. And, and uh, it just shows that... that um, that we have all kinds of different opinions, but what does the Scripture say? And Paul, in beginning in this session, uh, verse 24 of Colossians 1, all the way through chapter 2 uh, down to, say, verse 7, uh, Paul begins kind of uh, explaining his ministry, and in doing so provides for us what, uh, uh, what a pastor or what a, what a minister of the gospel is and what, what we should do and uh, helps us to kind of uh, reorient ourselves, you know, recalibrate. Okay, this is what I think, but this is what Scripture says. And so it's always good to be conformed to Scripture and, and not vice versa. So uh, the perfect pastor, the model minister. Uh, and then as Paul is writing, he is defending his ministry. And this is not the only time in the New Testament Paul does this. Uh, he does it in, in kind of small places here and there, but in a, in a grand uh, setting, the book of, of 2 Corinthians, or as the Donald calls it, 2 Corinthians, uh, he does that. Which, which, by the way, when that first came out, that Trump had, had mentioned that, um, if you ever, anybody ever listened to Alistair Begg preach on, on the radio? 
uh, man, just wonderful. Uh, one of my favorite preachers. If you've never listened to him, you need to. Uh, but he's from he's from Scotland. Alistair Begg, B-E-G-G. He's from Scotland, and he says one Corinthians, one Timothy. You know, two Corinthians, two. You know, that's the way he says it. And I don't know if it's in Scotland that that's kosher or, or whatever, but in the U.S. we normally don't say that. And so when they, yeah, Trump said two Corinthians, and I was like, well, so does Alistair Begg, and, and Alistair Begg is is one of the best preachers going today. But anyway, so but in, in Second Corinthians or two Corinthians. Paul writes, and that, that whole letter is pretty much a defense of Paul's ministry. That apparently there were some folks in Corinth that uh, wanted to kind of take the leadership reins and begin to uh, throw Paul under the bus. You know, and as you look at him, he don't, he don't look very impressive. He don't talk, he don't talk well um, and all these things. And he, he writes big and bad, but in person he's, he's meek and humble and and uh, so the whole letter Paul writes and basically defends his apostolic ministry. But here in Colossians, he does it here, and, and it fits right in this context he's talking about. But it does, he does more with this than just talking about his role. There's also some, some really strong theological statements in which Paul, he's, he's a master at this, he weaves in some doctrine into his personal uh, personal ministry uh, defense there and we'll see that along the way so again end of verse 23 he says of uh, the gospel which I Paul was made a minister verse 24 now I rejoice and you know rejoice it's an attitude a, a frame of mind you know to be filled with joy you know what is it that brings Paul joy and he said, what, what brings you joy and like, well you know there's a lot of things in life that brings me joy it's usually pretty uh, some pretty fun stuff Paul says, "Now I rejoice in my sufferings." Like, wow, you know, that's pretty. It's a pretty strong statement. He didn't say I rejoice necessarily for my sufferings. You know, he, he's not uh, one of these uh, uh, people that's uh, sadistic or whatever we want to uh, call that. It says, you know, he's just craving pain. He's craving suffering. You know, and nobody wants that. But even in his sufferings, he can somehow find joy. Um, and we know as Christians this is one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit isn't it uh, that uh, if we got the Holy Spirit even if we suffer our, our circumstances don't make us happy but we can find inner joy because our joy is focused on more than just our current situation but Paul says I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake for your sake he's writing to uh, those folks in, in, there in Colossae and they'd, he'd never been there they'd never met him but he rejoices for his sufferings for their sake. He's suffering for them. Paul, how, do you, how are you suffering for this church you've never met before? Um, well, Paul, we're going to see later on, you know, the, the, the burden and the concern that he has for all the churches in general. But in his ministry to share the gospel, especially with Gentiles, people that weren't Jewish, like the Colossians were, you know, Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles, went to those who had, who had, who had not grown up as Israelites, did not have the law and uh, all those blessings and benefits. He went to the Gentiles and spread the good news. And so in doing so, he found opposition you know, from the Gentiles. He'd go to them and say, hey, you need to change your way of life. It's way off base. You're going to hell unless you accept this Jesus there's going to be kickback from the Gentiles and wait a minute we got our own religion thank you 
Who are you to tell me I need to change my religion? So he got kicked back from the Gentiles, but also from the Jews. Because the Jews, we're the people of God. How dare you go to those Gentiles and tell them they are the people of God? No, they need to become Jews to be the people of God. So Paul fought oppositions from both fronts, and he suffered for that. And we read that in the Scriptures in several occasions. He mentions all the things that have happened to him, you know, beaten and stoned and left for dead and shipwrecked and, and fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. And I've always thought that was kind of funny, you know, being that we are Ephesus Baptist Church. But anyway, that was a joke, by the way. No, nobody take that to heart too much. But yeah, Paul suffered for the gospel, for his work of sharing Jesus with people. He suffered for that. Even a church he'd never met because they were a Gentile church. And he says, I rejoice that I get to suffer um, for sharing the gospel. Even if I'm suffering, I rejoice in that. For your sake. For your sake. Rejoicing in sufferings reminds us in the book of Acts, chapter 5, uh, verse 41 and 42. It says, The apostles, they were flogged for preaching Jesus. They were whipped and beaten. And they left the place. And it says, They rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer in his name. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for him. About Jesus. Then later on in Paul's testimony in, in chapter 9, verse 16, Ananias tells him, he says, Paul, you know, God has, has, has appointed you to be a, uh, a, a apostle of the Gentiles, and you will suffer for this. And so right off the bat, Paul's told, you know, yeah, you come to Jesus, you're saved, guess what? You're about to suffer, buddy, and you're going to suffer big time, you know. And how's that for an evangelistic technique? <laughs> you know, we tell people, you know, come to Jesus and everything will be great. It'll be rosy, you know. You know, that wasn't what, uh, and that's not the gospel either. Paul definitely wasn't told that. But yeah, uh, and, every, and think about even where Paul, remember where he was writing this letter from? He's imprisoned. He's currently suffering because he's taken the gospel to the Gentiles. And he's in a Roman prison, most likely. So yeah, Paul suffered. He said, uh, for your sake, for your sake, Paul did this. And so we see the suffering of Paul. And he says, uh, going on in verse 24, and he says, and in my flesh, my physical body, and why is that significant? Remember we've alluded to some of the heresy perhaps that had come into the Colossian church was this idea that it doesn't matter what I do with my physical body. As long as my heart's right with Jesus... I can do whatever I want. I can indulge in whatever passion I want in the flesh, and it don't matter. Well, Paul's already talked about the fact that, that Jesus died in the flesh. And Paul says, I'm suffering for the gospel in my flesh. So what happens in my physical body matters. It's not an instrument for sin. It's an instrument to the Lord. And so perhaps even alluding to that, in my flesh I do share on my behalf uh, or any of my flesh I do share on my behalf of his body which is the church uh, so Paul's saying right there he says uh, the body of Christ uh, is the church um, and this is Paul's faith response to Christ if Jesus is everything verses 15 through 20 says he is then Paul says our, our only natural response is to follow him our only natural response is to entrust ourselves to him. And if that involves suffering, so be it. He suffered. He suffered. 
You know, why, why would I expect not to? Whenever Christ himself even said, in this world, you'll find tribulation. And so Paul says, in my flesh, in my physical nature, my physical body, uh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. And Paul serving, suffering uh, for Christ uh, by serving the church. And then he makes a statement here that's, uh, that's kind of confusing. There's been a lot of uh, debate about what he means by this. Speaking of suffering in the flesh, he says, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We read that statement and we say, does that mean that when Jesus died it wasn't enough? And there's some that interpret it that way. Uh, they, they take it to mean that uh, there's uh, what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Um, well, Jesus died for my sin, so something's lacking there. And Paul says, I need to do something to add to that. And some uh, interpret this as an, an atoning uh, statement. Well, we know throughout the Scripture that it teaches just the opposite. In fact, getting into chapter 2 here, Paul says the very same thing. We're not saved by what we do. Uh, we're saved by the atoning work of Christ, and it's, it's sufficient. So don't go trusting in the law and good works to save you. Chapter 2 gets into that. So he's not talking about atonement here, obviously. So what does he mean? Well, some say, well, maybe there's a, a mystical sense in, in which uh, what happens to Jesus you know, happens to us, um, that uh, when, when Jesus suffered, we suffered. And they point to, well, think about in Paul's own testimony. Uh, when he was saved, Acts chapter 9, you know, Jesus spoke and said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul was persecuting the church. And so is he meaning in some mystical sense here the, a, a, a connection between himself and Christ? Well, we might think in a, in a spiritual sense maybe, but Paul already said, in my flesh I'm suffering physically for the gospel. And so I don't think that's necessarily what he means either. So what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Well, Jesus suffered and died so that we might be saved. Paul is suffering taking that message of Christ to those who are lost. So that is what is lacking. Christ died on the cross to provide atonement. Paul is suffering and taking that message of atonement to others. So that's what is lacking. The, the evangelism, the missions, going forth with that message of Christ and if need be suffering for taking that message of Christ. Filling up what is lacking. It's not that the atonement was lacking. It's, it's the mission. There are people that had never heard. There are people that still have never heard. So Paul said, I need to fulfill the mission of Christ. Uh, that's what's lacking. Taking the gospel. So it's an evangelistic uh, sense that I believe that Paul is referring to here. Um, not, not in atonement. So... Uh, I hope that uh, makes sense. He's not saying the cross isn't enough. Jesus said it is finished. He died once for all. It's enough. We don't add to the cross anything. Uh, we come to the cross and, and we lay it down. And uh, it's, it's sufficient. All right, so he says, I'm suffering in the flesh on, on your behalf. I do my share. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Literally, the Christ's afflictions. And so in a sense, what is, what is the word Christ? Messiah, chosen one, uh, the anointed one. 
And so he's kind of already beginning to, as he's bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, he's bringing these Jewish terms, which is significant because he starts to unpack some of that here in a second. Uh, so in any way, he is taking the true message of Christ, the Messiah, God's chosen one. He's bringing that message to those who are not Israelites, and he's suffering for it. And Paul says, I rejoice that I get to do that. It's worth suffering for, because he is a, a minister of the Lord. All right. So then verse 25, he says, of this church. And he says the body of Christ is, is the church. Of this church, I was made a minister. I was made. Paul, I didn't make myself a minister. I didn't wake up one day and said, you know what, I'm going to be a minister. Sounds like a pretty good idea. You know, uh, Obviously, if it involved that much suffering, I don't think Paul would have ever chosen to do that on his own. He was made a minister. He was made. You know, it, 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 In a passive sense, God made him a minister. Nobody it doesn't matter how much seminary or theological education or how much training or, or whatever you might go through. Nothing makes you a minister but God. You know, he, he's got a calling on everybody's life. Not everybody's called to be a pastor. And that's okay. Nothing inferior about not being a minister. Nothing superior about being a minister either. It's all about obedience. Whatever he's called you to do, you, you got to do it. You know, this wasn't what I chose to do. And, and, and when I first felt that calling in my life, I was like, there's no way you know, that, I, that I, I'm qualified for that. I'm not worthy for that. I've done too much. And it wasn't until I really began to feel that and embrace the nature of the gospel that, yeah, I've done too much, but Christ has done enough. It's all taken care of. Just got to trust in Him and give it to Him. So Paul says, I was made a minister. I didn't make myself. God made me one. A minister. The word minister there, um, it's the same word we get the word uh, uh, deacon from. A servant. I was made a servant. I uh, wasn't made necessarily a leader. We think, wow, you know, apostle you know, is, is this, this leader, you know, this, this superior. Yeah, I'm an apostle, Paul says, but I'm also a servant. Servant leadership. Where else have we seen that in Scripture? Didn't Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, die on a cross for you? Didn't Jesus wash the feet of his disciples? You know, leadership is, is godly leadership when it's exemplified by service, uh, not uh, by authoritative dictation. And so Paul, I was made a minister, I was made a servant, uh, according to the stewardship from God. Again, this was God that did this. I was made this by God according to, according to His plan, His will for me, His will for you. Stewardship. Uh, it, it literally a household manager is, 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 that, is that term. Uh, you think of one uh, in the household uh, who uh, keeps things running and keeps things in order and uh, keeps uh, food on the table and, and clean clothes and got all the schedules worked out. That, that's not me. <laughs> You know, uh, but in each home, you've got a household minister to make uh, uh, make sure everything works and everything's running. Uh, stewardship, Paul says, ah, that's me in the household of God. That that's my stewardship. You know, to manage what uh, what belongs to God, and that's the other aspect of a steward. You don't own it. 
Paul said, this church, I'm a steward. I don't own this church. It's God's church. And in his will, he wants me to serve this church. And what's my service to this church? Uh, to, to be the one that, that, that brings the gospel and the good news to this church. So of this church, I was made a minister. According to the stewardship from God bestowed on me, you know, not, not earned by me, bestowed on me, given to me. Uh, for your benefit. Paul said, I didn't become a minister for my benefit. God made me one for your benefit. He made me one to uh, to to help you uh, come to the Lord and, and grow in your uh, godliness, as we're going to see uh, next week, Lord willing. So according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that, so that, that's the purpose why did God make me a steward for your benefit? So that, the result of this, uh, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. Fully carry out uh, means to fill or complete. The same root word he mentioned a while ago and filling up what was lacking in the suffering of Christ. And so the twofold picture here, we get the suffering of Paul and we also get the service of Paul to fill out, complete the Word of God. To fill out the Word of God. And so as he took the gospel where Christ had not gone yet, he's taking the Word where it had not gone yet. By the way, it wasn't just the Word, was it? It's the Word of God. It wasn't the Word of Paul. It wasn't Paul's ideas, Paul's politics, Paul's opinions. Paul's thoughts, Paul's wisdom, Paul's philosophy. It was the Word of God. It's God's Word. It belonged to him. Paul was a steward of this Word. God gave him this Word to hear Paul. This is my message. You take it. You preach it. And that's significant because that Word is true and trustworthy. If it's mine, it's not always true and trustworthy, I hate to say. If it's God's, it is. If it's mine, it doesn't pack any power. If it's God's, it carries all of God's power. And so to, to preach is to literally proclaim or herald what God has said to say. God has said this, and I want you to go out and you say it too. And you don't change it, because if you change it, then you lose what? You lose the authority, and you lose the power, and you lose the trustworthiness and the credibility, all those things that come from God's character, if you deviate from his word, you lose that. But if you stay on that word, wow, you are packing all of that power and all that authority, and that's when things happen, um, according to God's purposes. So Paul is saying here that I might fully carry out, complete uh, this message, this mission of the word of God. It's his word, not mine, Paul reminds them. And then he says, okay, what is that word of God? That is uh, the mystery. The mystery. And we say, oh, well, what do you mean by mystery? You know, is it talking about uh, like the uh, board game Clue? You know, who done it? You know, is it uh, this character or that character or whatever? You know, the mystery. You know, uh, mystery in the old in the scripture is something that was that was uh, hidden in the Old Testament, concealed. 
never really understood and developed, but then revealed and unfolded in the New Testament. Concealed in the old, revealed in the new. It was something that was always there and it was always true, but it was, it was under the surface. Nobody saw it or understood it yet until after Christ, His death, His resurrection, and suddenly the mystery was unfolded. The mystery, this truth that was hidden was revealed. He says in this, he says, that is the mystery which has been hidden. Has been hidden. It didn't hide itself. It was hidden by someone. It was God. It's this truth that God kept under the surface, under the wraps, waiting for the right time before he let it be known. What was that right time? Well, I mentioned it was the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. Coming of the Holy Spirit. The new covenant. Then it says that God revealed it. It was the mystery which had been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested. And again, that's a passive word. It was hidden by someone, God. It has now been manifested, revealed by someone, God. So in his timing, he took something that was true, that nobody understood or knew about yet until Christ, and then God says, now's the time I'm going to reveal it. He said, which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested, past tense. We're not waiting for God to uh, unveil some kind of secret down the road. It's revealed. It's manifested. What is that secret? It sounds pretty cool. We'll get to that here in just a minute. But for now, Paul's saying it was hidden by God. Now it's revealed by God. And we're like, wow, that must be cool. Because remember, he's writing to this church and they're dealing with those folks that say there's this secret knowledge that only a few select will come to understand. And that's how you're saved when you come to this secret knowledge. And Paul's writing to this church and saying, God, God has a secret, this mystery, but this mystery has been revealed already. You don't have to wait for it for future uh, unveiling. It's already unveiled. And it's not just for the super spiritual, super smart special folks, Paul says. What does he say? He says that uh, has now been manifested to his saints. Remember what the word saint means? Saved person. Set apart people. Believers, Christians. If you're saved, you're a saint. So there was this message, this mystery of God. Now it's been revealed. It's been revealed to everybody who's saved. Not just a few chosen select people. He said, Colossians, there's this message from God, and you already know it. It's already been revealed. It's already there. It's already done. It's, it's wide open. It's, unf- it's like a book. <laughs> Amazingly, yeah, it's a book. It's the scripture. It's the truth. He says, it's now been manifested to his saints to whom God willed to make it known. It was God's will. He said, I've got this mystery and now the time is right and it's God's will I want, to, I want to make this known to all my saints to all my followers to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery the riches of the glory of this mystery 
among the Gentiles. Remember, Paul's writing to Gentiles, He's writing people that weren't Jewish. And so there was something about this mystery that it, it involved people that were not of Israel. And there was something about this message because in the Old Testament, Israel was God's people. But Gentiles were also God's people too in the fullness of time. And so as the new covenant comes in, Christ comes in, the gospel begins to go out to the Gentiles. And he says, The riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. There's a couple of different ways we can interpret that. One way, you automatically think Christ in you. Okay, as, as a Christian, you know, what that means. Christ is in me. I'm indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Means the Spirit of Christ resides within me. If I'm saved, if I'm born again, it's by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul says in Corinthians. Christ in you. It, it can be interpreted as such. It can also be interpreted Christ uh, among you, in your midst. Christ in you as one of you. Um, and it could mean that too. Because he just said in the statement right before that, he says, the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles. Christ in you. Christ among you. And, and really, perhaps he was alluding to both of those things. If you're saved, Christ is in you. If you're a part of God's people, Christ is amongst you as well. And what's so significant, he says, this mystery, this something that was true, and it was hidden, has now been revealed, and is so exciting, he says... Christ is in you. Who is you? They're the Colossians. They're they're not Jews. They're not Jews. They're Gentiles. So God's plan from the very beginning was to save all peoples, all over the world, all nations, regardless of, of ethnicity, uh, culture, language, background. God's desire is to reach all peoples. Not just Israel. But his plan was to incorporate all peoples uh, into his family. And that was good news for the Colossians. Because previously up to this point, in the Old Covenant, they were cut off. You know, because they weren't Jews. They weren't circumcised. They weren't following the dietary laws, uh, sacrificial laws, none of those things. They weren't participating in any of those things. And so they had no right to, to the, the kingdom of God. But now that Christ has come and the gospel has gone to the Gentiles, the mystery is revealed. It was hidden and now it's unveiled. God's desire is for all peoples to come to him. Christ in you. Christ in, in the Gentiles. That was the mystery. He says, you know, don't have to wait for some mystery down the road. It's already unveiled. Christ is in you. Christ is in you. And what is that significant for? He says, Christ is in you. That's the hope of glory. Hope. Hope in, in, in the present sense. What is, what is hope? It, it's saying, okay, here's my, my current situation, and I have hope or reason to believe that it will not always remain this current situation, that things will improve, things will get better. That's, that's hope. But for a Christian, our, our hope is not in just some idea. Our hope is Christ. Christ is our hope. <laughs> if Christ is in you, hope is in you. And that's why I said a while ago, Paul could rejoice in his sufferings because Christ was in him. He had hope. 
No matter how bad things get here and now, there's going to come a better day. You know, there, there, there's going to come a better tomorrow. I have that guarantee. I have that assurance. I have, I have that hope. Because Christ is in me. doesn't matter what happens now. So hope in the present, the hope of what? Glory. That's future. That's heaven. We did our study on heaven and all the beautiful things and, and the great things we've got to look forward to. That, that, that's glory. We're not there yet, are we? But if Christ is in us, we have the hope now of the glory that is yet to come. He says that's the mystery, folks. That Christ has come so that He might reside within you to give you hope now that glory is to come later. And that message, Paul says, I've been given this stewardship to take that from Israel and take it all over the world. And it might involve suffering. In fact, it does involve suffering. This is Paul says, but you know, I rejoice in that. And, and in my flesh, I fill up what's lacking in taking the gospel of Christ's atonement everywhere. And it's a joy to do that. Paul says, I do this, and I've been appointed to this on your behalf. And I rejoice that God would count me worthy to do such. So the model minister, according to Paul, is not one who uh, you know, works uh, 40 hours a day or whatever we just read a while ago, but the ideal minister is one who understands that God uh, has called me to this. And if it involves suffering, then so be it, uh, because I've got the hope of glory in me, and I've got this mission to take the gospel to all peoples, regardless of their background, regardless of their heritage, where they're from, what they've done. I've got the, I've got the commission uh, to take these things, uh, the hope of glory uh, of the gospel to all peoples. So as we think about that in our sense, and we say, well, I, I'm not a minister, I'm not a pastor, but if you belong to the Lord, you are a servant of the Lord. Uh, he's your king, and, and I mentioned this morning when we did our baptism, you know, he's given us this great commission uh, to, to go into all the world, as Paul was doing in, in Colossians, uh, to, to go into all the world and make disciples, and to baptize them and to teach them uh, to observe all that Christ has commanded and to know that he is with us always until the end of the world. That message was not just for those apostles, those 12 apostles. It's for the church. It's all of us. And so what makes Paul the ideal minister is the same formula that makes you an ideal minister in the hands of God. So well, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a preacher. It doesn't matter. You're a servant of the Lord. We've all got that same mission, do we not? Love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love our neighbor as ourselves. Fulfill the Great Commission wherever we go. Tell people about Christ. Live for Him. Bring others along with us. we got the hope of glory. Don't you want others to have the hope of glory too? Well, then it's up to you. You live that out and you speak it out every opportunity you get. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth of this mystery of the gospel, that you love all peoples. And it was your plan through the Jewish nation to introduce yourself to this world, to introduce your word and your laws to this world, 
and through the Jewish nation ultimately to send the Savior of this world. But God, the mystery was, as you revealed these things, it was not just for the Jews. We praise you, God, that it was for us as the Gentiles also. That even though we weren't by nature part of uh, the Jewish heritage, the gospel was still real for us. And that you loved us and you sent Christ to die for us. And we thank you for men like Paul and, and for women who also follow in, in that same footsteps of, of serving God, even if it involves suffering, and, and, and serving the church and, and, and making the mystery known to all peoples. God loves you and God wants to live with inside of you and if the Lord is in you, then you've got hope now of glory tomorrow. Father, we embrace that message, and I pray that we'll take that message with us when we leave this place, wherever we go. And we thank you, God, we don't have to do that alone. But we've got the promise that Christ is with us uh, from here until eternity. Uh, what a blessed hope we do have. God, thank you for uh, the blessings of this night, and I uh, pray as we go our separate ways. And as we leave this building, we are reminded we don't leave the church. We are the church. Wherever we go, we're the body of Christ. And I pray that we would act, speak, behave, live, and treat others in a way that reflects that reality. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.